Hey everyone, I'm Sally Abed. I'm Dina Kraft. I'm a Palestinian activist in Israel. And I'm a Jewish-Israeli journalist. This is Groundwork. A podcast about Palestinians and Israelis refusing to accept the status quo and working to change it. Groundwork is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. How can Israelis and Palestinians work towards peace and ending the occupation? In some ways, all of our episodes tackle that question. In today's episode, the answer is not what you might expect. The answer is science. Dr. Tariq Abu Hamid is a Palestinian environmental scientist from East Jerusalem. But he works at a kibbutz near the southern tip of Israel. Before we get into the story, we just want to underline how unusual this is. Absolutely. First off, a lot of people, both Jews and Palestinians, think that working with the other means working with the enemy. But the fact that he's working on a kibbutz is on a whole other level. I mean, kibbutzim are a symbol of Zionism. And a kibbutz in the south, the vision of making the desert bloom, was the dream of David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding father. And there's a powerful Palestinian anti-normalization discourse, which we'll talk about a little in this story. It's a movement that maintains Palestinians should not engage with Israeli institutions or groups. Doing so gives the impression that there's an equal power dynamic between Israelis and Palestinians, which is not possible as long as there's an occupation. And yet, Tariq feels that science gives him a unique way to make connections between Jewish Israelis and Palestinians and create a more sustainable world. As always, Sally and I will be back at the end of the episode to give some reflections. But first, Miriam Hirschlag has the story. There's a story Dr. Tariq Abu Hamid likes to tell about his origins as a scientist and his lifelong love of chemistry. He was in his middle school science class. I think I was in the eighth grade. I remember playing with the water electrolyzer. It's a device that separates the water into hydrogen and oxygen, and I broke it. The machine, made up of tubes and electrodes, was smashed to pieces. It was the only system in the school. And the science teacher said to me, look, you have to go to the principal and tell him what you did. And we had a very tough principal. Even the teacher wasn't, like, brave enough to go and tell him Tariq broke. I said, you have to go to tell him. But no dreaded punishment was handed down. The principal got that it was just an accident. And Tariq was told to just go sweep up the mess and throw it all away. What's most interesting to me about the story is what happened next. Instead of throwing everything out, Tariq picked up the pieces. I took them home. Started playing with these broken tubes, doing uh, experiments at home. He looked at all the broken parts, and he found a way to put them back together. It's a story about loving science, but it's also a story about fixing what is broken. For Tarek, these two things always went hand in hand. But doing that together with Jews? Well, given what was happening around Tarek at the time, it would have been hard to imagine. The soldiers used to come to the village, throw a tear gas, take people out of their homes, including myself, my family. Tariq grew up in East Jerusalem. He came of age in the crucible of the First Intifada, the six-year Palestinian uprising waged through protests, riots, and armed attacks, and met with massive force from the Israeli military. When the Intifada began in 1987, 
Tarek was in high school. They humiliate you, they hit you. I've been hit many times from the Israeli soldiers in my village, even in the middle of the night. I never forget one soldier pushed my mom inside my home and she failed. And you cannot do anything. If you want to go protect your mom, they will uh, hit you more and more. The Jews in his world were soldiers, and soldiers meant humiliation and violence. But one summer, in the thick of all this, Tarek went to work as a volunteer at a kibbutz called Ramat Rachel. It was just next door to his village of Sor Baher. Palestinians working on a kibbutz is not common, but the kibbutz needed volunteers, and they gave a decent stipend. That was my first exposure to my Jewish neighborhood. And that changed a lot of things to have some taste of the culture. It was the first time he interacted closely with Jews who were growing stuff instead of shooting stuff. It was like being transported to a parallel universe just down the street. He was fascinated by their culture, by Shabbat. On Shabbat, just to rest, just to have that day for yourself. He could walk through the fields or go into the dining room and take whatever food he wanted. The kibbutz uh, culture, how everything is uh, is shared, how everything is uh, is outside, all the uh, all the tools, the safety there that you feel people feel safe in their own uh, in their own community. But then, at the end of the day, he would return home to his village and go to sleep knowing that at any moment, Israeli soldiers might barge into the house. With that kind of chaotic dissonance, science classes offered a world of methodical inquiry, a world governed by laws. I think since I was a kid, I knew that I will be a chemist. Science would eventually be his way to try and find answers to the political turmoil he was living in. But as a kid, it meant a way out. When Tarek graduated high school, he did what so many other Palestinians did during that period of upheaval and campus closures. He went to study abroad. He spent 12 years in Turkey, earning a doctorate in chemical engineering. For his postdoc, he went to the U.S. to the University of Minnesota. There, he focused on renewable energy and climate issues. And while there, in 2007, Tarek heard about a job opening that would change his life. There was a position at the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies. It was an Israeli program, and it was unique because it focused on cross-border environmental issues. It had students from Jordan, the West Bank, and Israel. The job was to be the founding director of a renewable energy research center. It was a post that would put him right on the front lines of climate change working on practical solutions with students from the region. And it was on a kibbutz. And that last part, that it was on a kibbutz, was actually a big draw for Tarek. By now, he was married and had two little girls ages four and six. I wanted to give my daughters the same opportunity I had when I was a kid, to live in a kibbutz, to live with the Jewish community, to have that first-hand experience. Tarek had pretty much made up his mind If the institute offered him the job, he'd take it. He flew to Israel and made the four-hour drive to the kibbutz, Kibbutz Keturah. I went back to uh, Jerusalem. I rented a car. I arrived to Kibbutz Keturah. I just went in. I was looking for 
university campus. I was looking for, uh, you know, it's Anava Institute for Environmental Studies. You hear this name, it's famous, it's impact. And I was looking for large buildings. Instead, as he made the short drive around the kibbutz perimeter, Tarek saw concrete one-story row homes, a couple of low-slung communal buildings, and lush greenery popping out against the desert backdrop. What he didn't see was anything like a university campus. It's small, it's desert. If I'm not mistaken, it was July, extremely hot, very far. It's in the middle of nowhere. And I said, oh my God, I did a huge mistake. But Tarek had made the long trip, and it would be rude not to at least stay for the interview. Eventually, he was directed to the Institute headquarters, a simple structure the shape and size of a turkey run which is what it had been before it was converted into offices. So I went to the interview and I said, in my mind, no, I'm, I'm going back home. I'm not staying in this, uh, in this place. And the previous executive director uh, said, come, let's have a chat with, uh, with the students. I went to the dorms. Uh, there was like smaller groups sitting in the, in the living room in, uh, in the dorms. And they had a chat with them like for probably 20 minutes. That's all it took. 20 minutes. And I said, I'm staying. If they offer me this job, I'll, uh, I'll take it. What sealed the deal for Tarek wasn't how much he liked the individual students. It was, well, the chemistry. How do I define that? How do I explain that? It's like you feel the atmosphere. You feel the warm uh, environment there. You feel that there is a family, there is a community. The students he met were a mix of Jewish Israelis, Palestinian Israelis, Palestinians from the West Bank and Gaza, Jordanians, and others. For Tarek, the encounters between them had a unique quality. It was more than just two students coming together for a short program or semester or a... No, it's like there was no ice between them. Even at the beginning, you cannot tell who's the Jordanian, who's the Israeli. And that's exactly what I was looking for. A place where everyone is, can get into that uh, melting uh, part and become one community. And that was probably the, was the main reason that I decided to stay in, uh, in Qutra. It was a chance for someone who loves to fix things, to make real progress on fixing not just one, but two massive problems, the environmental crisis and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Tarek was hopeful. In his work and studies abroad, he had seen how science could be a connecting force. When you go to conferences and you meet people that they come from the U.S. or from uh, Iran or from... And when you speak to them, you have a common language, which is the science. And that's what connects you. And still... Choosing to work so closely with Jews meant opening himself to criticism from many Palestinian activists who oppose what they view as normalization. Some in the anti-normalization camp argue against any collaboration with Israelis that doesn't actively resist the occupation. To do so, they say, normalizes the abnormal. But that's not how Tarek saw it. Normalizing is, is like to accept the occupation I, I don't accept the occupation. I don't think that there is a single Palestinian, regardless where he or she uh, live, can accept the, the occupation. 
For Tariq, rejecting the occupation did not mean refusing to engage with Israelis. He simply had a different working theory of peacemaking. No, we have the, the science, we have the shared environment that we can use to bring people, uh, people together. Climate change is felt by everyone in this uh, in this region, and everyone understands that regional cooperation is a must to deal with the, with it. So I'm not coming from uh, Los Angeles or uh, in New York to this region to do environmental cooperation. No, I'm someone who lived under the occupation, and I see that environment is a great tool to build trust. And so, despite misgivings from some friends and colleagues, Tarek took the job. That decision didn't just mean going to work at the Institute. It meant moving his family, his wife and young daughters, from the U.S. to a remote kibbutz in the desert. It meant a Muslim-Palestinian family living in a tightly-knit Jewish community, a settlement rooted in Zionism's nation-building ideals. On the day I meet Tarek in his office at the Institute, a large group of children from the kibbutz is playing just outside. Kibbutzim are famously kid-friendly. And when I ask Tarek what his most vivid image is from living full-time on the kibbutz, he tells me it's his kids playing with the other kids. Once a woman who used to run the kindergarten asked us how does it feel like an Arab conservative family living in a Jewish kibbutz in, uh, in the desert. How do you feel? And my wife looked at me and I looked at her and we said, you know what, we really don't feel any difference. This community did not make us feel any different from anyone who lives in the kibbutz. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a unique experience. Hitura is among the few kibbutz communities still governed by strong collectivist principles. The dining hall serves up three meals a day to members, volunteers, visitors, and the staff and students at the institute. And like all kibbutz residents, Tarek had to take his turn washing dishes in the kitchen and serving food in the dining hall. In the beginning it was weird, but you start to, uh, to enjoy it. And when you are a professor and uh, the students come to the dinner in the dining room and they see the professor serving them food. That's also a unique uh, experience for me and for them. <laughs> oh, you clean your, their dishes? It's, uh, <laughs> it only happens in the kibbutz. <laughs> no, no. That's not to say it's easy to be a Palestinian living among Jews and working with a mixed student population. In fact... Tarek's first semester at the Institute coincided with the 2008 Gaza War, known in Israel as Operation Cast Lead. The clash led to the deaths of somewhere between 1,200 and 1,400 Palestinians and 13 Israelis. Jewish kids from the kibbutz and students from the Institute were in the army and were invading Gaza. Students from the Arava Institute were called for the reserve duty. So it's Look, it's, it's, it's very complicated. But where some might see such an explosive and divisive moment as a time to pull back, Tarek did the opposite. He reached out. I found myself like dealing with the students, calling my friends in Gaza, going to our financial director, his son was in the war in, in Gaza, asking him, how's your kid? So I'm 
talking to someone that his son is fighting a family or brother or a or friend in Gaza. His students, he said, followed suit. You see Israeli students asking Palestinians, do you have families in Gaza? Do you have relatives in Gaza? You see Palestinian and Jordanian students asking, do you have a brother or sister or friend in the army? In 2013, Tarek left the kibbutz when he was tapped to become the deputy chief scientist at Israel's Ministry of Science. In an extraordinary twist, Tarek spent part of his three years in the ministry as Israel's acting chief scientist. No Palestinian without Israeli citizenship had ever held such a senior Israeli government post. But there, too, being Palestinian was far from easy. Despite his senior government position, he still suffered indignities, like the kinds of invasive searches at airport security that most Palestinians experience, or the crass comment of one boss who actually said to him, quote, tell your friends to stop the stabbings. After three years, in 2016, Tarek decided to leave his post and came back to the Arava Institute as academic director. He took on the executive director role a couple of years ago. I think it's a lot of his strength comes in his ability to be able to connect with people and communicate with people, um, even on really difficult subjects. Kathy Granit is the Institute's New Zealand-born program director. Maintaining a sense of community for people who come from opposing sides of the conflict is an art. And Kathy says Tarek has a talent for it, even when it comes to the third rail issue of normalization. We had a meeting at the start of the semester where Tarek came in and said, OK, you know, let's talk about normalization. Let's talk about some of the criticism that the Aravar Institute gets. Um, you know, but let's, I'll, I'll give you my perspectives on it. You can ask any questions. I'm interested to hear from you. Kind of the openness to not, not avoid things that are difficult or not to um, give any kind of sense that we're trying to push anything under the rug. It's like, if it's difficult, we should talk about it. Since coming to the Institute, Tarek has championed many controversial programs in the dual hopes of solving environmental issues and bringing people together. Perhaps the most audacious example is a program with Gaza. In Gaza, cross-border dialogue is taboo, and the Hamas leadership has even jailed Palestinian activists for holding Zoom calls with Israelis. But it's also a place with some of the most daunting climate-related problems. The enclave suffers from a severe shortage of drinking water. It's caused by overpumping and pollution and Israeli and Egyptian blockades that have cut access to alternative water options. Tarek leads a program with the Arava Institute that coordinates delivery to Gaza of a revolutionary technology, it's called WaterGen, that produces clean drinking water from air. They trust us, we trust them, they're very open with us. When there's something happens, they tell us it's not a good time to talk, it's not a good time to implement a project. And this is a very simple proof that things can happen. Cooperation can happen even with people inside Gaza because people want to have or to live a normal, a normal life. This commitment to cooperation, whether at the regional level or among the students and researchers at the Institute, it runs deep for Tarek. But it can also be painful. It's not easy for someone who really saw the ugly face of the occupation 
to decide to say, okay, I want to use science to connect between people. I want to use science to, to build peace. Inevitably, Palestinian students who come to the Institute struggle with this, but they still come. Do you like the food here? Uh, should I say or lie? <laughs> say the truth. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't like it. What do you miss? Uh, flavors. <laughs> I met Maya Abdulkhai at the salad bar. It's lunchtime on a Monday in the broad, clean dining hall on Kitura. Long tables are arranged in a cafeteria-style grid beneath fluorescent lights. The self-serve food islands feature standard kibbutz fare, chicken, fish, grains, the day's soup. Maya is from Betunia near Ramallah in the West Bank. She's 26. The necklace she's wearing is a potent message about where she stands politically. It's a key-shaped pendant, a popular symbol of the Palestinian experience of displacement and the hope of return. After lunch, I followed her to her experimental station. Today, she's using a pH meter to measure the acidity of agricultural wastewater. So the pH of the water is 7. So we're now talking about wastewater, which is like more salts in it. It's 7.4, so, so I think the oxygen reacts with the nitrogen, which makes nitrate. I need to write it down. Maya's experiment is applied science in the most direct sense of the term. Untreated agricultural runoff poses a dire problem in the West Bank, and Maya is working on optimizing wastewater filtration using a small, constructed wetland. She hopes to implement her findings in the fields near her family home on the outskirts of Ramallah. I'm from the West Bank. There is not a lot of wastewater treatment plants there, so the wastewater is everywhere. Like The environment is not going to wait for the conflict to be solved. Venturing over to the Israeli side has not been simple for Maya. She calls it a good-bad experience. That key necklace she wears comes from a friend who lives in a refugee camp next to Ramallah. Maya called her on video during a field trip the Arava Institute took to Lifta in Jerusalem, and they both got emotional. The friend told Maya her grandfather lived in Lifta. He was kicked out in 1948. And yet, Maya tells me, cautiously, that she thinks meeting Israelis is a good thing, discovering that they're not all soldiers, that they go to work, that they get married. In a region that is sliced up by hostile borders and that faces shared threats to survival driven by climate change, Tarek says that students navigating these kinds of emotional labyrinths may be everyone's best hope for progress. I believe that I can use environment, that I can use uh, science to connect between people, to give people the opportunity to share their stories. It's very important to me that the Jewish Israelis in Israel understand or at least have the chance to hear my story. Without having that exposure, I won't have that opportunity to tell my to tell my story and also hear their stories. That's also very important. In the vision that Dr. Tarek Abu Hamad is pursuing, any future peace will be built on the shoulders of people who are forging connections now while there is conflict. It'll be built by those who can see across borders, who understand science, who know that, ultimately, 
The air we breathe and the water we drink belong to everyone. Miriam Hirschlag. Tariq is the executive director of Arava Institute. You can learn more about their work at arava.org. I think the first thing that struck me about Tariq's story is the fact that his choice to raise his family at a kibbutz. Um, you know, I grew up with a grandfather that had a fascination with the kibbutzim. I always saw it as this fascination with your colonizer building their utopia on top of our destructed villages. Uh, so I'm going to be very honest. It's it's very hard for me to see, um, you know, how a Palestinian family would exist there. At the same time, it's nice. It's a mental exercise to see the impact that the Palestinian family is doing at, at a kibbutz like that. Uh, definitely. Yeah, I, it, it's interesting hearing your perspective because I was thinking sort of about how kibbutzim sort of conjure up such fascination, right? They're these sort of utopian communal places. The whole world is sort of enamored with them as sort of this iconic part of Israeli history as well. But yeah, but your perspective on that is, is, is definitely interesting and important one to note. And um, I was also just struck how his, his sort of kibbutzim are a through line in his life. You know, he's a high school student as we hear, and he comes across the kibbutz near near his home, and he sort of falls in love with what he sees there, and then he wants his kids to sort of experience that experience. That very there is something very special about kibbutz life, especially the sort of the feeling of connection and community, and living in this sort of little bubble of um, a beautiful place. And that really takes us to the normalization and anti-normalization, uh, you know, conversation, accusations that I obviously also uh, deal with as a Palestinian who works in a shared space. Uh, like Tariq, I think our goal is to utilize our existence, <laughs> you know, our mere existence within Israeli society and the interactions that we have, and even as they are, to build the political capital within Israeli uh, society to end occupation. And you can't do that without, you know, talking to Israeli Jews. Uh, I go to classrooms, you know, in universities and in high schools of people that protest on, on my me identifying as Palestinian. I am an Arab Israeli. I am, you know, there is no Palestine. There is no occupation. We need to understand, uh, you know, that when we talk about anti-normalization, especially within Israel, the occupation is already normalized at best. Usually it's not even acknowledged. So the fact that we are doing this work is it, it's essential. It's essential for us as Palestinians to be in these places and actually put that conversation on, on the table to reverse that normalization. Wow, so I wish we could keep talking. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up again, but please keep your ears out. We'll have another episode dropping in two weeks. Groundwork is created and produced by me and Yoshi Fields. The episode was reported by Miriam Hirschlag. Content and audio editing by Yoshi. Additional content editing by Elisheva Goldberg. Joel Shupak scored the piece. Art and design by Nick Acosta. We need your help. If you found what you just heard meaningful, if you think this kind of reporting is important, then please take a few seconds right now and rate us and give us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. We depend on you to make these stories. So make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. This show is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. 
New Israel Fund is the premier funder and organizer of progressive Israeli civil society, with over $300 million from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of organizations, working for change on the ground for over 40 years. The Alliance for Middle East Peace is the largest and fastest growing network of Palestinian and Israeli peace builders. You can learn more about them in their websites in nif.org and allmap.org. And you can learn more about our show there or at groundworkpodcast.com. Our theme music is by System Ali, a multilingual bi-national hip-hop group whose cultural activity is deeply rooted in the communities where they work. Original scoring in this piece comes from Deeb Amori. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode narration was recorded by Ohad Basson. Make sure to subscribe and thanks for listening. Shukran al-Mutaba. Tudah.